zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Winter of Our Dreams, released August 1st, 1981. It was written and directed by John Dugan and released by Greater Union Organization, an Australian distributor who last season distributed My Brilliant Career. Patty Chayefsky, screenwriter of Marty, Network, and Altered States, died the day this film was released. <laughs> Unrelated to the to the film. <laughs> As a result of this Coincidence? Film. I think not. <laughs> Dugan's original script was called Someone Left the Cake Out in the Rain, after the lyric from Richard Harris's MacArthur Park. Did you guys realize Richard Harris sang that song? <laughs> no. I didn't even know he sang. Richard Harris? Richard Harris, the man the called Richard horse, Harris? sang that song. Really? Yeah. MacArthur's Park is melting in the dark All the sweet green icing flowing down Someone left the cake out in the rain I don't think that I can take it The first draft told the story of an anti-nuclear activist who starts a relationship with a formerly radical yuppie but the story was rejected for government financing and extensively rewritten. So wait, that's not what this is? Not exactly. There's <laughs> other elements to this version of the story. It involves heroin now and a wife and different things that were not in the original version. It was just a straightforward romantic drama with this nuclear background. Background radiation. I was just going to say background <laughs> radiation. God damn it. <laughs> Judy Davis reportedly lived amongst prostitutes in Sydney's red light district to familiarize herself with the living situation of her character. It was nominated for seven AFIs, which are Australian Film Institute Awards, Best Film, Adapted Screenplay, Director, Actress, Supporting Actress, Sound and Production Design, but only Judy Davis won. And in fact, she also won Best Supporting Actress the same night for her role in another film, Hoodwink. She had previously been nominated in the Best Actress category for My Brilliant Career and lost. I think she was better in that movie. I mean, I like her in this. I mean, there's nothing wrong with her performance in right. this, but that is a far superior movie to yeah. this one. I, I don't know what her competition was in that other category. We start at night in the city of Sydney, Australia. A woman named Lisa Blaine is walking along seemingly distraught, perhaps in need of help. She dials a payphone and we cut elsewhere as a couple are arriving home late at night. The husband, Rob, gets to the ringing phone a moment too late and Lisa hangs up. She continues wandering through the crowded city and stops to visit her prostitute friend Louise, or Lou as we'll come to know her, and makes a gift of an acoustic guitar in a case. Lou immediately sits down to play it and Lisa disappears into the night. We cut to the next day and Rob is managing a bookshop while playing an electric chessboard against a computer opponent. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone playing chess on an electric chessboard? Uh, I think so. What movie and who was it? Uh, you know, I just realized that I was thinking of the thing and that's not, not correct. Not that. But the person is similarly frustrated with the machine. 
That's right. Paul Sorvino in Cruising. I still, still don't remember yeah, it. I don't, I don't remember <laughs> that He calls at all. Al Pacino into his office, and he's playing chess right before Pacino walks mm. in, and he's getting pissed off because he just entered an illegal move, and the game is chastising him because he doesn't even know the rules of chess. Son of a bitch. A customer watches him play for a moment before asking if she can buy something to summon him to the register. She tells him his books are a ripoff, and he says he's saving up for more video games. She seems amused by the joke. As the woman leaves the store, Rob hears on the radio that the body of Lisa Blaine was discovered floating in Sydney Harbor, and he looks shaken by it. A group of kids at the door invite Rob to a game of soccer, and he turns them down before we cut directly to Lisa's funeral. Lou, the new guitar owner, is here, as are Rob and another acquaintance of Lisa's named Angela. Rob strikes up a conversation with Angela and learns that she, like Lisa, is an anti-uranium activist. She didn't know Lisa well, but recognized her picture in the paper. Rob asks if she seemed depressed, and Angela admits she did. I remember she tried to play a song on a guitar once. She kept forgetting the words. We cut back to Rob's place, and he's sitting on a patio with his wife Gretel. She asks why the shop was closed up today, and he claims business was slow instead of telling her about his deceased ex. We learn from this chat that Rob and Gretel are in an open relationship, and she asks permission to spend tomorrow night with her boyfriend Tim. They both admit to some guilt and jealousy with regard to their arrangement. The next day, Rob stops by Lisa's old apartment and chats with her landlady a bit. Apparently Lisa was mixed up with a lot of drug dealers and dealees, and the landlady recalls at least one friend, a girl named Lou, and Rob asks where he can find her. She works at the cross. We cut to that night, and Rob has taken the landlady out for a meal to repay her for the information, and they watch Lou across the street working as a prostitute. They make jokes about how quickly the girls on the corner seem to be rotating customers. The landlady points out Lou, and Rob crosses the street to strike up a conversation before an approaching John can get to her. Rob opens by claiming he's writing a story about Lisa. He offers Lou a drink in exchange for a chat. Instead of a restaurant, they move to a hotel room. He pays $30 for a 15-minute chat. He learns Lou has known Lisa since Lisa came back from Holland with a boyfriend. Her boyfriend skipped town, and Lisa was upset about it for a while, but not suicidal. Confusingly for American audiences, Lou uses the Australian phrase, shot through, in place of skipped town, so at first I thought Lisa's boyfriend was murdered, and she <laughs> bounced back right after. Her boyfriend shot through. Yeah. It's a fair while ago. Was she upset about that? For a bit. Lou confirms that Lisa used drugs regularly, and she believed the death was suicide. Lou starts to get uncomfortable with the conversation and returns Rob's money before leaving. We cut to Rob playing more electric chess at home, and he gets a call from Gretel, checking in from her boyfriend's place. It looks like she's not the only girl there this time. Rob tries to allay her guilt by joking that he's brought a couple girls home himself. Nymphets, he calls them. Rob looks at an old picture of him and Lisa. We cut to Lou's place as she prepares to shoot up. Not shoot through, shoot up. <laughs> We see Rob watching Lou another night, and he follows her to a cafe. He buys her a coffee, but she suspects he's just into prostitutes. She asks his line of work, and he tells her about his bookshop. While they chat, another man takes a seat behind her and glares at her. When she notices him, she freaks out and leaves without her coffee. Presumably this is her pimp, wondering why she's handing out free samples. Outside, we hear a snippet of their argument, and he says she won't find another room. So maybe he pays for the room and holds it over her head? Like any other job with benefits? Or maybe he 
runs the hotel. Like yeah. she pays in advance for rooms and then. But I think this is literally where she lives in the room that she does her business in mm. also. And so he's saying, if you quit this job, you don't have a house anymore. Rob tries to intervene on her behalf and they both tell him to fuck off. We cut back to Lou's place later and her friend Pete knocks on the door. His knock weirdly reminded me of the Super Mario Land theme for Game Boy. <laughs> Sounds like this. Pete, by the way, is played by a rare acting appearance from director Baz Luhrmann. Was it really? Yeah. Oh. He lays down beside her and annoys her with tickles. She asks him to please leave so she can enjoy some liquor alone, and he doubles down on his failed flirtiness. He starts stroking her legs and then holds a half-eaten hamburger near her face as if it were a penis dangling from his jeans. She calls him immature, and he tries to slut-shame her to defend himself until she asks him to leave again, and he finally does this time. I mean, he does look like a kid here. Yeah. Like, he looks like... He's he's maybe... probably a couple years younger than her. Yeah, but it may, I mean, he looks like he's 18, maybe. Yeah. The next day, Lou pops by Rob's bookstore, and he's happy to see her. She seems nervous, and he offers her a glass of wine as she struggles to light a cigarette. She's brought him some photos she found of Lisa. One of them is on a beach in Goa. Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned Goa on the podcast? It was neutral in World War II. Oh, there's been Victory. several. <laughs> Which is why you couldn't attack things that were there. Oh, crap. For example, the SS Ehrenfels. Uh, the, the Sea Wolves? The Sea Wolves is correct. <laughs> you pulled that one out. That was oh, good. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was a struggle. That was. <laughs> the bloody thing's not in India proper. It's in Goa, damn it. Somewhere in the Mama Goa Harbor. Neutral territory. Lou also found Lisa's diary, but doesn't seem to have brought it. Rob asks her if Lisa ever tried to go clean, but it sounds like it never stuck. Lou claims to have been blindsided by the suicide, but giving away precious possessions like her guitar and the depths of a deep depression is one of the biggest tells there are that someone's planning to end things. Lou gets uncomfortable again and heads out. On the way, she asks if Rob is still writing a story about Lisa, and he claims he is. Weirdly, she adds, She would have liked you. As though Rob and Lisa hadn't been in a relationship in the past. Rob invites Lou back anytime. Back at her apartment, Lou undresses and climbs into bed and reads a bit of Lisa's diary. July 4th, 1970. We performed the street theater play with my new song. Then Robbie and I joined the main demonstration. The atmosphere was incredible. You feel everyone marching as your friend. Robbie's great. It goes up the cops, cracks jokes with them, tries to keep things calm. I love being with him. He's still so distant with me though. Nothing like how it used to be at school. Lou finds an envelope in the diary with Rob's phone number on it. We cut to Rob and Gretel playing tennis on a dirt court at night. Gretel finishes him off and they head back inside. Whoa. Yeah, right there on the court. <laughs> Balls everywhere. <laughs> Balls splayed about. Gretel asks Rob for a back scratch in exchange for a massage that she gave him, but Rob insists that must have been someone else she massaged. In any other movie, this would be typical married couple ribbing, but he might be right here. Oh. Rob is turned on by her tennis outfit, and they begin making out until the phone rings. Gretel answers first, but hands the phone to Rob without speaking when she hears a woman's voice. It's Lou, and she wants to come over to talk. Rob offers to pick her up and give her a ride. 
Lou boards a ferry and Rob picks her up as she disembarks at the opposite dock. She gives him a quick kiss. When they get back to his place, Lou seems impressed by Rob's home, but not impressed enough considering he runs a failing bookshop because it's a multi-story, multiple-bedroom apartment. Rob fixes her a glass of wine and she's startled when Gretel exits one of the bedrooms wrapped in a towel. I didn't know you were married. You didn't ask. Why didn't you tell me on the phone? Just because I'm married doesn't mean I can't have visitors. Well, it's pretty late. I feel like an idiot. <laughs> well, there's no need. This is when I went, wait, they're married? <laughs> I didn't, oh, I got that impression right away. I, I did not. I just thought that they were in a in a relationship. I don't think you have an but, open relationship with a girlfriend. Maybe you do. You Yeah, you probably could. I, mean, I feel I like real- it makes more sense with a wife than with a girlfriend. I mean, I think that this was the movie's way of making sure you knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it made me sure. (laughs) I (laughs) I, I was not even sure. But, like, the part that I'm confused about here, though, is, like, I think he's just trying to be nice to Lou. Like, he wasn't. Having... I think he's romantically interested in her. Do you? A little because bit. I don't feel like that's the case at this point. Like he felt like she needed a place to come and be, and he said, "Yeah, come on over. That's fine." No, I I think given his arrangement, he's a very free man. He met this person who reminds him of an ex, and he cares about her. I think in more than just a general personal human well-being way. I guess, but I feel like even with their open relationship, it seems weird to invite her over while your wife is there. Yeah, but I think that's that's part of the system is that you, you're allowed to do these things in front of each other and that that's just a part of the process. Maybe. I mean, because I don't feel like he initiates any of the romantic relationship no, I agree. in this movie. I think that's true. I, I do think he, he feels for her uh, and that he is attracted to her, but I agree that he doesn't he doesn't act on it. in any way lou still hasn't put two and two together that rob and his wife have an arrangement to keep her from leaving rob shows lou a photo of him and lisa at a vietnam protest lou worries how she'll get home now that she's missed the last ferry but rob invites her to stay overnight will she mind no we often have nocturnal guests awkwardly for lou rob sets her up in the spare room and then returns to sleep with his wife Gretel suggests that Lou could come back the following night when she plans to be out of town with boyfriend Tim. The next morning, Lou wakes up to the sound of Gretel entertaining more guests. When she opens the door, she finds Rob also listening in on the conversation without joining it. The guests are Gretel's parents, and Rob hides from them in Lou's room. He tells her that he should probably make an appearance and invites her to follow him to make things interesting. Eventually, he misses them, and they leave. He tells Lou she can make herself breakfast with anything they have while they're gone for the day. Gretel is upset that Rob didn't come down to say hi. She and Rob leave in a car together, and Lou watches them go through the kitchen window. They don't go through the kitchen window. (laughs) She watches them through the window as they go. Through the window. Through the window. Wrong. (laughs) Hanging participle. Dangling participle? Dangling participle. Dangling participle. Inappropriate. Every time. We hard cut to her shooting up in the guest room. She engages in a short staring contest with a cat and then wanders into the living room to play recordings of Lisa's music on the house speakers. And it's time for burning bridges. I wish there was some other way. A way to take the words back that I never meant to say. Cause it hurts to see your tears. I didn't mean to make you pay. 
tries on a bunch of Gretel's clothes. Lou walks down to the beach and finds a pair of topless sunbathers before returning to the house. When she gets inside, Gretel is changing outfits, and her boyfriend Tim honks his horn out front. I think she's uncomfortable uh, because she cannot take her shirt off because it would reveal all the marks on her arms. Right, yeah. There's an uncomfortable moment as Gretel leaves the house, I think because she sees Lou wearing all of her clothes. (laughs) Gretel tells Lou to inform Rob that she left with Tim. She watches Tim and Gretel kiss across the street, and then we cut to her playing guitar. The guitar playing isn't great, but her singing is beautiful. It makes the late Lisa sound like complete garbage. She hears Rob pulling up and starts a pot of water boiling to make him coffee. They hang out some more and share stories of old relationships. Lou talks about an ex who would shoot heroin into his eye. Rob is not amused by drug culture, and Lou basically says, don't knock it till you've tried it. I don't find the dope scene very romantic. I don't think you know anything about it. (laughs) I see. Rob shows her a bit of tough love when she admits that she wants out of that life. He reminds her that she has to want it for herself, and it's entirely up to her. Lou starts to get a better understanding of Rob and Gretel's arrangement, and they spend their second night together in the master bedroom. Lou asks more about Lisa, and Rob seems to downplay their relationship. He refers to her as a mere acquaintance, where her diary seems to make it clear they were something more. Lou whips off her top and climbs into bed with him, and they make out briefly until he suddenly throws her out of bed. He tells her that he finds her attractive, but they can't have sex, and she gets dressed to leave. On her way out, she takes a stack of cash out of his wallet. I don't really understand this moment, because it if you're right and he's like keeping her there because he does like her then i don't know why he would invite her there and keep her up in the room and like all this stuff that would make you think that he wants to have sex with her i think what he really wants from her is more information about lisa that's what he cares about and he wants to hear anything and everything she can recall about her relationship with lisa i think he would love to get his hands on this diary but she doesn't bring the diary over and he never asks for it but i think she mistakes his interest in the memory of lisa for a specific romantic invitation for her and then when she goes for him he's like hold on now i feel like i'm betraying lisa by doing this even though he has a wife i think he it feels like more of a betrayal of his ex-girlfriend okay on the ferry home a woman with her arm in a cast asks lou to sign it When she refuses, the injured girl and her ruffian friends start following Lou home. They take the same bus as her to her neighborhood and follow her off, chasing her down a flight of stairs. But it's not really her neighborhood. She doesn't have a neighborhood anymore because she gave up that job. Eventually, they're running full speed through a tunnel, which empties into the protester camp for the anti-nuclear crowd, and Lou finds four police officers supervising the demonstration. The gang gives up the chase under the watchful eye of the law. Lou notices among the sleepy protesters that they seem paired off into man-woman couples. Lou climbs the exterior of a building onto a balcony and then enters an apartment where someone must be squatting. A handwritten sign outside the door reads, On this site will soon be erected a great big ugly soulless apartment building, uninspired in design, with paper-thin walls, stingy little rooms, and no style at all. 
Inside, she finds Pete and his cat hanging out in bed. He offers for her to stay here for a bit. In the corner, he has a standee for the Bette Midler comedy special, Divine Madness, which was released in 1980, but which we didn't cover because it's a comedy special and doesn't lend itself to our format. It's also the second of two films directed by Michael Ritchie on the year after The Island. He directed The Island and a Bette Midler comedy special. (laughs) Hell of a year for that guy. Pete has a surprise for her. He lifts a blanket from a moving sculpture of a Swiss army knife. Presumably he stole this. We also saw a sign for a gas station on his balcony, so this might be a habit of his. Oh, man, I, I remember these. Do you? Like, I remember going to the, the T.O. Mall and, like, passing by the store that sold Swiss Army Knives, and they had a, and they a, had this dis- moving a, thing. a display. <laughs> I was like, oh, I want a Swiss Army Knife so bad. <laughs> I just want this display. She asks if he has any dope to spare, and he gives her a small baggie, which she pockets for later. She asks him for a massage, and he starts working her feet, but slowly moves up her legs to her thigh, and she asks if he's trying to seduce her. When he tries to undo her skirt, it kicks off a slap fight, and eventually she leaves, confessing she wouldn't get any sleep here anyway. She heads to her friend Jenny's place, and buys her way in the door with the dope she just scored off of Pete. Lou wakes up the next day in their living room, with her cassette player in her hand playing Lisa's song. She steps outside and reads more of the diary. She reads a familiar passage about Lisa finally spending the night with Rob, only to have him dismiss her coldly the same way he just did to Lou. We cut to the bookshop, where a book launch party is taking place. A few teenage customers notice a buffet for the event, and sneak a few bites before the party commences. Eventually, they're escorted out. As Rob and Greta leave, we see Lou across the street watching them. Apparently, she expected only Rob, because she hides around a corner when she spots them together. Later, there's a knock at Rob's front door, and he answers it to find Lou. He invites her in to join a dinner party. It's not super awkward, though, because Gretel's boyfriend, Tim, is here, too, so really Lou is just evening things out. It's still pretty awkward. Sure, it's a little (laughs) awkward because she's, like, heroined out of her mind. Well, yeah, well, (laughs) so it's just like, yeah, this is Gretel's boyfriend, Tim, and this is Tim's girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah. He's a psychic. Is she girlfriend or wife? Uh, There, I think Tim and this other girl whose name is escaping me. Michelle. Michelle. Uh, yeah, there it is. I have it written right here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was co- partially covered by the mic. Uh, yeah, she claims to be like a, a girlfriend, psychic. a psychic. Yeah, and I think they're in a relationship okay. together. Because they're, they're definitely in a relationship. I just couldn't get if they yeah. were girlfriend or, or married. But does that does Michelle know that Gretel that comes had... up later? Oh yeah. One of the guests is Tim's girlfriend, I guess Michelle, who is blathering on about the zodiac or whatever because she's a psychic and she can read the stars. What did the, what did the lady say in Endless Love? She's a citizen of Jupiter, if you will. Right? You guys don't remember the movies that we watched? No, no, no. <laughs> they, they leave my brain the second we're done talking about them. After a moment, Lou is starting to look pretty messed up. I think she's actually in withdrawal here. I don't yes, think, absolutely. I don't think she shot up, and I don't even think she partook in the dope that she bought her bed with last night. I think she gave that to them to use and just slept. Her eyes are dark red and she keeps wiping her nose and her chest is glistening in a sheen of sweat. We cut to later that night and Rob and Gretel are in bed together. Gretel complains about Tim's girlfriend, wife, Michelle. So apparently Tim is also in another relationship and she thinks that she might be over Tim because he embarrassed himself tonight and Rob says that Michelle was eyeing him up. But this is where she asks, do you think Michelle knows about me and Tim? And and she thinks that she does know mm. but they might have an open relationship too who knows apparently even if you're in an open relationship you're not so open that you tell other people that 
In the guest room, Lou sleeps above the sheets, looking very strung out. She tosses and turns for a while before moving out onto the balcony where she starts sobbing. Later, Gretel awakens to the sound of Lou vomiting and runs to check on her. Did you know she was a junkie? Yeah. Thanks for telling me. Rob and Gretel invite a doctor friend over to verify Lou's problem. The doctor says it is withdrawal and Lou will need constant supervision. The next day, Rob is home from work chopping wood and he can overhear more vomiting. Lou is determined to kick her habit and Rob checks in to wipe her face and wrap her in blankets. It's like he's giving her the treatment that he never gave Lisa. But I don't know if some of this is actually happening or if it's happening in Lou's mind because she hallucinates about a couple of different things. She does, but I think this is a real shot. I think this is him taking care of her because over the entire course of this movie, Rob and Gretel seem like grade A wonderful people that are legitimately trying to help this woman get off this stuff and get back on her feet. Lou has a montage of flashbacks to hanging out with Lisa in her crappy apartment and encounters with elderly Johns from her streetwalking nights. Eventually, she wakes from the nightmare and then collapses back onto her pillows. Rob arrives home with a box of groceries and Gretel tells him that Lou was crying in her sleep, but she's quiet now. I don't know if this is the exact scene, but, but like, there's a scene where Gretel and Rob are in, like, overalls that kind of are reminiscent of mario and luigi oh are like, they? like she's like in green green and like green over green shirt with the overalls and he's like in a red shirt with overalls I was like what is happening what I is happening here <laughs> this predates mario though right uh yeah gretel admits that lou should probably stay here longer and rob suspects out loud that she has nowhere else to go they both assume she's nearing the end of her painful withdrawal gretel is clearly worried that lou will never leave Gretel takes Lou for a walk, and it lasts all day. Eventually, Rob finds them together that night. He talks to Gretel about a dinner they've been invited to later this week, and Lou feels like a third wheel. Rob mentions that he's turned in his article about Lisa. Even later that night, Lou seems to have read a draft of this story, which mentions Lisa, but is not entirely about her. Lou tries to explain to Rob what he meant to Lisa, and eventually Gretel has to interrupt the argument. Probably, I don't know. It's a bit cruel, isn't it? I'm really sorry, I'm trying to sleep. I've got to work in about four hours, okay? Go on, I'm going. The following afternoon, Rob finds Gretel at a table on the balcony and tells her that Lou has left. He gave her enough money to find a new place. Gretel seems genuinely guilty for Lou's departure, but is happy that Rob thought to provide for her. We cut to Lou at her new apartment, which we can recognize from the flashbacks and from when Rob visited, is Lisa's old apartment, because there's big murals scribbled across the walls. Lou reads a sadder passage from the diary. October 10th, 1970. Last time I saw Robbie, he told me that after the exams I should go away for a while. I take things too seriously. I'm too intense. Now when I try and ring him, they say he's not there. He must have told them to say that. It's really humiliating. If only we could just even be friends. I feel really desperate. Lou puts Lisa's song on again and then sits in a windowsill staring down at the courtyard below. We cut to Lou with Pete at his place and he communicates how frustrated he was that night when he felt teased by her. She admits, freshly sober, that she does have special feelings for Pete. He pulls out some dope to celebrate, but she tells him that she won't be partaking. She tells Pete that she is quitting every aspect of this life. The drugs, the junkies, the sex work, all of it. The phone rings at Rob and Gretel's place, and Tim's girlfriend, Michelle, answers it. 
Once she gets a hold of Rob, she tells him that she's found a place and she's okay. She invites him for lunch on Sunday and he agrees. Uh, it's a flat three, 40 Barrett Street, Potts Point. Where do I know that from? Once he's off the phone, Rob mentions the Sunday lunch and a friend reminds him that they have a big soccer match that day. We cut to Sunday morning and we see Lou bringing a big bag of groceries into her building. She finds Rob leaving her a note, thinking he'd already missed her. He breaks the bad news that they'll have to cut the date short. Listen, I've got this bloody soccer match on. It's an annual event I can't get out of. She's clearly devastated that he's canceling on their lunch. On the verge of tears, she buries her face in his chest and he tries to reschedule their lunch for next weekend. She's pretty sure he's blowing her off, but agrees to meet next week. She closes herself in her apartment and sobs when she sees the table all dressed for their date. She looks around at the paintings on the walls and is overwhelmed by them. We cut to the locker room before the game where the team is getting dressed, but Rob is just sitting there. Everyone heads out onto the field but Rob, and somebody asks what he's waiting for. Come on, mate, you'll miss the toss. I'll be with you in a minute. Are you all right? I'll be with you in a minute, okay? We cut back to the anti-nuclear demonstration, and Lou stands just outside the circle until she's greeted by Angela, Lisa's friend from the funeral. Lou is invited to join the group for a meal. One of the protesters strikes up a folk song on a guitar, and another girl sings along to it. Lou looks moved by the performance and crosses to sit with them. She sits listening to the music until the film ends and credits roll over a freeze frame of her listening and crying. That's the end of Winter of Our Dreams for some reason. <laughs> yeah, what's Not with sure the title? What the title means. <laughs> Was it winter? Nuclear I don't winter. Know. It's Australia. <laughs> I, I get confused. Maybe it was winter. I don't know what the date it was. It snows in summer there. and I don't know. <laughs> Does it snow in Australia? I don't I, know. I guess probably not in Sydney on the harbor. But maybe it does. I don't know. I don't know shit about shit. I'm an idiot, listeners. Yeah. Winter of Our Dreams. Uh, sort of small, personal drama story. I think that there's... We get a lot of range from Judy, obviously. Um, I really like Rob. I like this actor, Brian Brown. I think he's fun. Yeah. But uh, but there's not really much of a story here. It's very simple, and there's not a lot of conflict because this open relationship is never really tested in a way that it feels like their relationship is at stake. There's, like, maybe a little bit of friction here and yeah, there. Yeah, I'm not clear on, like, how I'm supposed to feel. Like, I... I don't dislike Rob in this movie. I don't think you're like, supposed to. I Oh, I thought I was supposed to. I think that, actually, you know what? I, I do recall now when we read the synopsis that it made it sound like Rob was going to be a bad guy. No, or like he was it, taking advantage of these women. Yeah, well, I, I remember that too. I believe the synopsis called him a womanizer. Or, or maybe it was a, a different synopsis that I read. But they used that word and I'm like, is he? He's well, in an open relationship and he flirts with people. But. I mean, like, he doesn't seem like he's just going from woman to woman. Like, I think he had real feelings for Lisa. He just happens to also be in an open relationship. But nobody has a problem with this. I'm like, is he really a womanizer? I don't think so. Yeah, the, the, the synopsis says womanizer. And it also says that Lou hooks up with him and reading the diary and realizes she's making the same mistakes. It's like... It's like it makes I, it sound like she's making mistakes with Rob. Yeah. But she's making the same mistakes in her own life because she's going to lead herself to an early death by this drug. Right. And she also never hooks up with him, really. Yeah. 
I mean, they lay down and make out for a minute, but he puts a stop to it immediately because yeah. he's trying to help her recover. So it's weird. I, I, I do think from the filmmaker's perspective, this is not a movie about a guy being predatory in any way. This is a movie about a couple who happen to be in an open relationship and this guy is sort of reliving a past relationship through this woman but he just wants to help her that's really all he wants to to relieve himself of some of the guilt yeah. of having abandoned lisa and her and ending up dead but i agree with you i don't think rob's supposed to be a bad guy and i think gretel comes off as another great person here yeah because she doesn't know this person she didn't know lisa so she's not she doesn't have this vested uh need to to solve her problems she's just a human who recognizes a human in need and is like yeah, she should stay here longer. You should stay home with this girl and make sure that she's okay. You should give her money so she can get an apartment. Yeah. I have no problems with that because it's a human being who deserves some empathy. And I think they, they both seem like really great people to me. And I don't think Judy's supposed to be a bad guy either because she's screwed up on a lot of stuff and then she straightens herself out. Pete's not a bad guy either. He's yeah. he's a little touchy-feely. He's, he's very grabby at her, but you can tell he's... He's a sweet guy and he's just lonely. Yeah. And he's also deep in this drug culture. But I don't think there are any bad guys in this movie. Except the street toughs that yes, try to that's true. The yeah. hassle around Casty, the Casty and friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, but altogether, I thought they were all well-rounded characters that I enjoyed the performance. It's just a very, very simple story. Hence, we're 40 minutes into this record and we're done with it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's. I don't think there's much to say about it. It, it just, it, it wasn't a bad movie. It's no. just not like. I don't think there's anything stand out that's like you should definitely see this for this. Yeah. Unless it's for Judy Davis's performance, which, I feel like in the in the meantime we've seen such more dramatic like withdrawal performances mm -hmm. that this honestly doesn't really stand out as one of the most amazing ones i mean it's not her fault this is pre-train spotting this is pre you know yeah. there, maybe this is a very early movie to show someone coming out of a heroin binge yeah um but i don't think there's anything super special about this where do we have this letterboxed oh by the way thumbs up or thumbs down it's hard on this one it, because it, it's a good movie I mean, I guess I'll give it a thumbs up because, like, there's nothing wrong with this movie. Right. It's just not particularly engaging. I think I would also give it a thumbs up just because I like Judy Davis and I like Brian Brown. And so to have them together is fun. Yeah. I, I put this movie right next to Permanent Vacation. Okay. That because makes I, sense. Like, in my mind... Another like, super short episode. It's super short. Well, there's, there's, like, just not a lot in that movie, but there's nothing wrong with right. it. Right, yeah. It's you know it's a fine movie uh so i have this at 64 out of what is it 103 103 now yeah. yeah i have it at 64 out of 103 it is below permanent vacation and above maniac richard uh as far as the thumbs up thumbs down uh i guess i'm going to give it a thumbs up but if if there was like a meter <laughs> <laughs> like that showed you a line where the th the, the that yeah. divides the thumbs up and thumbs down. It's like right in that line. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's it's a thumbs middle. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, I have this at number seventy, out of one hundred three. Uh, puts it below Modern Romance, but above Backroads. I feel like I should give it a thumbs down just to balance it, but <laughs> I'm gonna give it a thumbs up because I enjoyed the performances and I enjoyed the characters. Um. I mean, I could, I could give it a thumbs down if you want. Just no, you so don't we feel better. I'm not, I'm not trying to adjust anybody. <laughs> Got to um, average out. But I have it in 76. I have the lowest of the three of us. 
Um, but that doesn't mean as much on my list. Well, to be fair, I actually had it considerably lower. And then we talked about it. And I'm like, I think I missed some of these things. Oh, okay. Because there wasn't a lot of action. But I'm like, I don't think I realized how much, like, what he was doing was related to Lisa. Right. Like, yeah. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. He's helping the prostitute. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I have it in 76th, which puts it right below Savage Harvest and right above Escape to Victory. Our director here was John Dugan. I didn't recognize many of his credits, but we just recently watched Flirting with Noah Taylor and Thandi Newton, Nicole Kidman, Naomi Watts, and he wrote and directed that. Oh, the other Australian one. Yeah, with the kids at the yeah. boarding school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cinematographer here was Tom Cowan. He was working on his own film, Sweet Dreamers, as writer-director, and then stopped down work on that so that he could do this film and then went back to his own movie. Judy Davis was Lou. We saw her last season in My Brilliant Career. Later, she appears in Barton Fink, Naked Lunch, Husbands and Wives, The Ref, Celebrity. She was Hedda Hopper in Feud, Betty and Joan, and Nurse Betsy Bucket in that recent Nurse Ratchet show, which you watched some of. I don't know if you watched all of that. Oh, I did not watch much of it. She was on there somewhere. Brian Brown was Rob. We've seen him so far in Breaker Morant. He's back this season for a mini-sode review of The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. He shows up in FX 1 and 2, Cocktail, Gorillas in the Mist, and more recently he was Osiris in Alex Proya's Gods of Egypt. Baz Luhrmann played Pete. This was his first acting role of only six on IMDb. He's best known for his directing on films like Romeo plus Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> Equals. <laughs> Equals love. He also directed Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby. I think at one point we referred to him as Michael Bay for women. <laughs> because it's like everything is epic camera moves and explosions and I stuff. love his stuff. Yeah. I think it's great. Peter Mockery played Tim. He's Mr. Kelman in the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. Alex Pinder plays Terry. He's Dr. Winston in 78 episodes of Ocean Girl, whatever that is. <laughs> Bill Garner was a writer on 35 episodes of Blue Healers. Robert Hughes was Martin Kelly in 267 episodes of Hey Dad. I feel like I'm talking like about an alternate universe. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Australian shit that everybody knows and I've never Ocean heard Girl. of it because I'm, I'm a total idiot. Hey Dad. It's a little wild. <laughs> yeah, little it's the Australian strange. version of Hey Dude. It's called Hey Dad. <laughs> they work on a dad ranch. <laughs> What's a dad ranch? <laughs> you know. I don't know. Thomas J. McCarthy uh, doesn't have a character attributed to his credit, but we just had him as the hospital policeman in Blowout a minute ago. He's also the head gardener in Mannequin and state editor Tim Phelps on The Wire. Those are all the credits I had for this one. I think that's everything for Winter of Our Dreams. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Condor Man, which IMDb describes like so. Cartoonist Woody becomes the superhero he draws. Using his gadgets, he helps a Soviet spy defect to the West. We leave you now with the trailer for Condor Man. Who can save Princess Juliet, held captive by the evil Count Lorca? Who can save the city? Who? Who? Who?
this Condor man on this man Wilkins. He's an amateur, do you hear? He is not an agent of the CIA. He is a writer of comic books. Find out who has been using the code name Condor Man. But how can we escape? Fly? I'm sorry I had to get so violent. But it was the only language they understood.